please be aware that this is for professional investors only. Good morning. It's Wednesday, the 10th of March, and it's time for another shot of Morning Espresso. So as ever, if you're watching this live, we have the simultaneous translations, which you can access by clicking on the button below. We have a second button, which is the Q&A button, but you can always send us uh, your questions to nordiafunds at nordia.com. Right. This morning, I am joined by Arvinda Tiwana, and Arvinda is uh, an ESG analyst within our responsible investment team. So good morning, Arvinda. Are you there? Can you hear me? Yes, I can. And good morning to you, too. So, Arvinda, we've invited you in this morning to talk about um, an engagement case that you and the team have been running since 2018. And this engagement case was with a company called Varun Beverages, who are based out in India. So to kick things off, maybe you can tell us a few words about Varun Beverages. Absolutely. Um, Varun Beverages is one of the largest bottlers in India. Um, its product uh, consists mainly of carbonated drinks, juices and water. Um, they have around 30% production sites uh, throughout India and a handful located internationally. And, and so the, the engagement was around water management. Why was it so important to engage with them on this particular topic? There are several reasons that make this uh, important. Um, first of all, for a bottler, uh, water is a critical resource and uh, without access to water, Varun Beverages wouldn't be able to produce any of the products. Uh, second of all, India is one of the most vulnerable countries around the world for climate change. Um, the country is highly exposed to floods, droughts, high temperatures uh, that can lead to periodical or long-term water scarcity. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, Indian beverage business is highly seasonal. So uh, three months out of the year um, represents 40% of Varun's uh, revenues and uh, nearly 100% of uh, its annual profits. So any unforeseen disruption in production um, could uh, caused by uh, a lack of access to water um, could have significant impact on the company's financials. So all of these uh, issues combined make uh, water the a very interesting and important thing to engage with the company on. Yeah, exactly. So, so we so we've decided to engage with them. But what was the actual change that we were looking for from from Varun? We wanted to ensure that the company uh, viewed uh, water access strategically and uh, implemented uh, appropriate risk mitigating initiatives to ensure uh, long term access to water. Mm -hmm. And, and so how do we actually engage with them? How do, what's the process? How do you go about it? Yep, so we have talked with the company regularly on conference calls. Uh, we've visited, visited them, 
them uh, several times. Uh, we've also inspected uh, one of their production facilities to uh, see how their water management is implemented in real life. Yeah, it's, it's super important to mention perhaps that here at Nordea, you know, we have our own uh, ESG rating system. So of course we look at external providers, but we produce our own ratings. Um, but also you go on field visits, don't you? You go out and you actually meet the companies that we're engaging with. It's not a just desk research, is it? Absolutely. And uh, the inspection of the production facility was, uh, for example, conducted by the PM and uh, myself. Yeah. Uh, so, so it is a combination of uh, everything. And, and so what was the outcome? So you go and visit them, you do your research, you engage. Yeah, what happened as a result? Um, there's several different uh, positive outcomes from this engagement. Um, first of all, Varun has uh, Varun Beverages has started uh, reporting more extensively extensively on um, its water uh, management to its shareholders. Uh, it's taken uh, the the reporting from a CSR uh, level of or type of reporting to a risk management type of reporting. Um, it has uh, started auditing its water use and groundwater recharge. Um, water data is now being reported to senior management as a risk parameter for long-term strategic planning. Mm -hmm. uh, but most importantly, the company has significantly improved uh, its groundwater recharge. Uh, the last number I saw, um, the company now uh, recharges 2.8 times the amount of water it withdraws from the groundwater uh, is recharged. And that's an improvement from 2018 where the number was uh, 1.7 times. So Avinda, maybe you could just quickly explain to us what recharging is, what that means? Yes, of course. Um, during the production uh, process, the company often use groundwater uh, in the production. And recharging is a way where they can take uh, rainwater and through shafts and uh, different uh, methods, uh, put that rainwater down to the groundwater again. So they basically uh, put water that they take out, they re-inject the same amount of water or more into the groundwater. Oh, cool. Okay, so um, so this is the engagement case up to today. I mean, is this done now or, you know, what does the future look like? Are you, are you still engaging with Varun? Yeah, we will still continue to engage with uh, the company on its groundwater um, recharge activities. Uh, but we'll also be pushing more for a CapEx contingency plan uh, for a few of the production sites that are located in high water stressed areas. Mm -hmm. Well, in that case, um, we'll have to get you back on and you can give us an update uh, further on down the road. But in the meantime, uh, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Take care. All right. Well, thanks again, Arvinda, for that and uh, speak to you again soon, no doubt. Now we're going to move on to the main section of today's discussion. And for that, I'm joined by Michael Mordner. Michael is the managing director of the uh, Manco, which is Nordea Investment Funds SA. So good morning, Michael. Hello. Good morning, Paul. How are you doing? All good here. All good. 
We're also joined by Cecilia Siegbahn. Uh, Cecilia is our regulatory expert for um, our internal ESG regulation project. Cecilia, are you there? I am. Hi, Paul. Good seeing you. Oh, hi. Good morning. How are things? Good, thank you. Excellent. Now, before we start, um, I'd just like to point out that the content today isn't advice. Um, it's not regulatory consultancy that we're doing here. Um, what we're simply trying to do is give our house view of our current understanding of the situation as it stands today. Um, and of course, any regulatory developments that we think are gonna happen uh, in the future. So I just wanted to be clear about that before we get going. So um, good to see you again both. Uh, so we spoke last October, so October 2020. And at that time, you introduced us to your sustainability tree. Now, just to refresh everyone's memory, that sustainability tree was basically a, a visualization of the impacts of the EU action plan um, for financial um, sustainability growth. So since then, we've been through the winter and spring is just around the corner. So I thought perhaps we could start with uh, an update and you can tell us how things have been developing with the tree. Sure. So what you see on the screen now, that is sort of the, like you said, the visualization that we use on how to work with the EU action plan, because that is what is highlighted in the roots as we see it, because that is how we, where we turn to get the understanding of what the legislators actually mean with whatever they come up with in the regulations, which is the second part here, the, the trunks. And then mm -hmm. on the top, you can see the, these concepts that we are working with that goes across the regulations. And mm -hmm. the main thing is that we wanna make sure that you know, we don't interpret one part of the, um, of the concepts in one regulation and then something differently in another. So it needs to be a full view and that is what we think is quite important. And that's why we can't separate everything and just look at them individually. And I've tried to highlight the, the red marks here for the ones that I will be um, focusing a bit on today, which is mm -hmm. on top of our agenda, to be honest. Yep. So it's, it's not actually by chance that we've asked you to come on to the Morning Expresso specifically today, uh, it's March the 10th, because it's today that we have the introduction of the sustainable uh, finance disclosure regime. Uh, and so those regulations come into force uh, today. So I'd like to ask you a little bit about that uh, in a minute, but um, what other deadlines are we seeing um, in, as an industry sort of moving forward? Because it's not just today, is it? It doesn't finish here. We've got a timeline moving into the future as well. Yes, you're absolutely correct. So, I mean, today is a big day, 10th of March. I would even say that it's a bit of a landmark when it comes to the EU agenda for sustainable finance. Oh. Um, <laughs> so as of today, there's no going back. We will have disclosures both when it comes to the product level, we will have the documents and also other channels updated with this information. And as well, we will have to uh, disclose information on us as an entity level on how we see things. But if we can have a look, we have a prepared sort of timeline here for, for what is other going on on the regulatory side and dates to keep in mind. Uh, because mm -hmm. 
the big thing to um, that happened since we spoke last, I'm not sure if you remember, but I was quite um, uh, quite longing for these level two requirements that is um, uh, that we were expecting from the ESAs yeah. at the time. And a couple of weeks ago, 4th of February, we actually got them. So the ESAs <laughs> finally published their report on the level two measures of the SFDR, uh, handed it into the commission, and now we're expecting them to take a decision on it um, later now, Q1, sorry, Q2 mm -hmm. perhaps. Uh, there is still some uh, unclarities, I would say. Uh, the ESA has published a super rare statement, it's called, uh, where they clarified some things from when it comes to the timing and application. And as it looks now, it's going to be applicable as of 1st of January 2022. Uh, but in my mind, you know, I would prefer to actually get the final version because it's first when we have the final version, we can start our active implementation in, in our work. So that is what I look forward to. Mm -hmm. Uh, what else do we have here? We have the taxonomy regulation. Next up for them is the delegated acts. It's the screening criteria that's going to be used for the climate change adaptation and the climate change mitigation. We've quite seen quite a long delay here, but in this case, I think it's more a matter of um, political um, tension, I would say. Mm -hmm. uh, you keep in mind that the, the EU action plan is really pushing towards investments towards specific areas and therefore it raises some uh, political awareness, I would say, and causes some delays. Uh, third point that we are focusing on is the updates of the MIFID II usage and AFMD delegated acts. They would probably be approved as a package uh, in end of March and that means that then the it needs the uh, implementation period and then application is probably going to be next summer. Okay. Uh, yeah, I don't have it as a slide here, but just worth mentioning, I would say that we've seen a lot of local initiatives uh, also popping up in the market. So I think that's going to get our focus um, for the coming months. So both when it comes to the AMF in France, uh, then we're also seeing the Luxembourgish sustainable finance strategy being published uh, a couple of weeks ago now. So that is very interesting for us to follow up on. Yeah, we if talked I can about last. I was going to say that we talked about last time when, how fluid the situation is. Yes. There's constant change, isn't there? It is definitely. And then, you know, when you take it down to the local side, you, you, you don't have the unanimity as you have on, on EU level, uh, for example. So that's why we need to stay alert to make sure that we are, we are keeping up with these um, the local initiatives. Mm. But if I should just sum up what we have on the regulatory side. We, first of all, it's a lot of um, tractions in general. So there's a political uh, tension, which causing some delays, which is expected. Uh, but then as a third point, it's also quite a lot of uh, uncertainty, even amongst the regulators themselves. So as an example, we can see that the ESAS, they issued a firm letter where they asked for clarification from the commission on how they should interpret the SFDR in the first place. Okay. and. Uh, so, I mean, that was questions like, uh, will there be thresholds and what is considered as promotion? And in my mind, that is quite crucial for them to understand if they are then implementing additional requirements on us. Yeah. So it sounds like there's um, a lot on the radar right now. So I guess you're just sort of keeping the most prominent ones um, as your priority at the top of the list there. 
maybe if we could just stick with um, the disclosure um, developments that, that we're discussing. And, um, you know, obviously this is a completely new environment for, for all of us. Um, so what clarifications have been made in terms of the, the level two, you know, this RTS, um, and how does that compare to solutions that the industry has been implementing to date, you know, until now? Um, well, first of all, I mean, you're, you're absolutely correct with the fact that we only focus on what is most relevant for us today. Uh, it could be mentioned that there's a lot of things happening in the market. You know, you have the uh, non-financial reporting directive coming up, the green bond standard and the eco label. And from our point of view, I think we're very interested in seeing what the commission is going to come out with in action point number six, which is mm -hmm. how they're going to regulate the, the rating agencies that provide us with the data today. But going back to your question on what level two would actually mean, um, I would say that you can split it up to three bulks or three boxes and sort of the main focus areas will be. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, we have the principal adverse uh, impact. Should be noted that this only applies to entity level at first, but for us to have this in place on entity, you know, to do like the, the bottoms up. So all of the products still need to have it in place, even though the disclosure is on entity level. Mm -hmm. And point two and three, they are interlinked because that is for the product disclosures, both for the, we get details on the uh, pre-contractual, which is the prospectuses, but also the periodic report on how that should be disclosed going forward. Okay, so maybe I could bring in Michael now because uh, Michael's been sat there, hasn't said much so far. Um, Michael, perhaps you could just give us a few sentences, um, uh, the highlights, if you like, on the main aspects of this principal adverse impact, or PAI as it's called, um, and the integration of that and perhaps, you know, the, the related disclosures. Sure, Paul. Uh, and uh, let's probably start then right away with the PI or principal adverse impact. And to start off, I actually would like to say that what we see right now is much more a workable solution than what we had before, because the, the scope, overall scope of um, mandatory adverse sustainability indicators uh, that was provided for in the first draft of level two has been massively reduced. I mean, mm -hmm. in the first draft, what we saw basically there were 32 mandatory indicators that you needed to check and report on. And then on top, you had to take at least uh, two from a set of voluntary uh, ones. Now, basically, from 32 mandatory, it's reduced down to 14, which is quite a big step. And uh, you still have to take two from uh, a set of uh, I guess 24 voluntary ones, but basically uh, this also makes things much more easy to deal with. Noteworthy, however, is also the fact that when we're talking about the mandatory ones, when you invest in specific asset classes, such as sovereigns, such as real estate, for example, there's also a, a few other mandatory ones to be considered. So uh, in a nutshell, I could probably say that uh, it's much less burden, uh, which is also and that's probably my personal interpretation, also acknowledging by the policymakers the data challenge the industry is facing right now. We have talked uh, quite often about that, uh, mm -hmm. but still it's not a walk in the park. I mean, there's still some challenges and also especially KPIs related to, for example, biodiversity, uh, waste or hazardous waste or uh, uh, water emissions, that remains a challenge. And uh, what do I mean with that remaining challenge is maybe by giving an, an example to illustrate, is uh, take a fund, a fund invests actually into uh, a software company. 
but it can be quite challenging to get from such a software company information on whether their activities uh, or the services that they are producing are negatively affecting uh, biodiversity sensitive areas. So it's a kind of a new set of data and a new way of actually getting to data that is actually required. But what is also important here is that data is getting better day by day. So there's more data coming to the market, not only because of upcoming regulation, uh, we have the NFRD just around the corner, so the non-financial reporting directive, but there's also voluntary standards that are being used. And uh, all of this basically needs to be taken into account that the RTS make it actually quite prominent that it's on best effort basis. So we as an asset manager, when we basically can prove that we have done what we could in order to get documentation, data, and uh, check in on all these different indicators, then basically that is good enough, even though we might not always get data to the last uh, granular bit and piece. So all in all, getting better, I guess that's what I would like to say here, and Pi being now a much more workable solution. Then turning a bit to the second part of your question, Paul, at what does it actually mean for product-related disclosure? And uh, one important aspect that were uh, that was brought forward by the by the RTS uh, is actually that we now have the final templates. Final, provided they are accepted like that by the Commission, obviously. <laughs> but they are templates for both the pie statement, but also very prescriptive uh, uh, templates for how you have to disclose. Uh, in the prospectus. So I guess that is also something that on top of the very prescriptive way uh, as to how you have to document uh, and provide documentation on the websites that will lead to kind of a transition simply because um, that there will be a certain degree of standardization, no doubt about that, Paul. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's also leading to a, an intended comparability because obviously clients and also distributors, for example, they will actually have to have a big job in order to assess the different pieces and products from the different providers. So having standardization makes certainly sense. But it also means, as I said, uh, there's actually quite a, a rapid transition that is needed simply because uh, all players have to get there uh, by the 1st of January 2022. So it's just about uh, nine and a half months around the corner and mm -hmm. that you have left uh, to get all this in place. And some are further, some are actually trailing a bit in terms of quality and content of disclosure, but all have to get there uh, by the end of this year. So that's more in general for both types of products. When we look a bit uh, in particular at the Article 8 and later on also at Article 9 products, when it comes to the Article 8 ones, there's uh, one key feature to my opinion in the RTS that is worth taking note of. And that is actually that when you actually take into account PI on a product mm -hmm. level, then that in itself is already determining and characteristic or justifying why you promote a product as an Article 8 product. So that is actually quite important because it also has kept or reconfirmed the statement that basically in order to be an Article 8 uh, product, it is actually quite a wide arena. So uh, you can have various degrees of ambition, you can have various investment approaches, various strategies, and that basically all means that firms have discretion that they can use when promoting an Article 8 product. So it's getting clearer that you basically can use the characteristics or features in a uh, discretionary way, but be precise. That's basically what it says. Okay, uh, so is that, sorry. Sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say, so, so basically what you're saying, it sounds like 
it's there's going to be more data it's going to get more granular but we're also going to see a move towards a sort of standardization across the industry as time goes on correct yeah. correct and that is probably another journey that is actually uh completed within the next couple of weeks or months i guess that's something that we are all clear that will take years to really get us there and then maybe just a quick last word paul on the article 9 products and okay. one aspect there which i think is uh quite relevant is that um, Article 9 products basically are products with a sustainability objective and they are actually made up of sustainable investments. There are definitions of what is a sustainable investment and so on and so forth. Uh, but it was some sort of uh, uncertain what is basically needed in order to have basically an Article 9 product. Do you need all investments in an Article 9 product being sustainable investments, for example? And now, basically, it has been made clear that still the expectation is that it's made of sustainable investments. But in case of lacking data or you basically use uh, other kind of features or instruments for liquidity management, for hedging or alike, you can also consider these instruments being eligible for an Article 9 product. But you need to explain and uh, justify why they are there. So. Uh, this is actually also quite a relief, even though we're still waiting for uh, commission, as Cecilia mentioned earlier, as to whether there will be final thresholds. Remains to be seen. I personally am a bit doubtful as to whether we get that from regulators um, and policymakers, but we will see. Um, nonetheless, I guess if there are not these thresholds coming from the policymaker side, it will be very much up to the industry to set the standard here. And there are yeah. different thresholds already discussed all across. But let me also come back quickly, and that's my last sentence on this one, Paul, uh, on the urgency of looking at the RTS and already at least start considering them. Because 1st of January 2022 is just around the corner. So it's basically just a few months left because you also have to file an update and file your prospectus, get it approved uh, by your authorities where that is actually applicable uh, prior. To the 1st of January. And you can imagine that there will be quite a queue, for example, yeah. uh, here in Luxembourg uh, in front of the CSF, CSF if, yeah. if everybody comes only on the last date. So I guess firms are well advised to basically take that already serious now uh, in order to get started early and basically not be uh, ending up in a queue as the last one in line. So um... So obviously there's a there's a long path still ahead of us, and like you say, it's best to be prepared and, and get at the front of that queue there. Um, maybe though, if we just bring it back to today, uh, the 10th of March, you know, we've got this new regulation coming into force. What does that actually mean though, from a you know practical perspective? I mean, what what's actually changing as of today? So. If I think we can keep it quite simple, I think we have it on a slide here uh, to say that we will see today updated yeah. pre-contractual documentation. And this is the prospectuses. Going forward, we can probably expect to see the key documentation and all other pre-marketing material being in line. And as Michael mentioned, there will be a template on how the information will be in the pre-contractual. And one idea would be to sort of extract that from the prospectuses and use those templates as a sort of an ESG kid in itself and be able mm -hmm. to distribute between, between clients and investors. Mm -hmm. And second part would be the website will have updates. So here you will both see product details, but also 
entity uh, statements on how we how we work with things in uh, Nordea. And when it comes to the level two measurement that Michael mentions here, you can see that it will be the same information first of January, but just beefed up more details, more, more information exactly how it is applied. Mm. And the third uh, disclosure here will be the periodic report. Uh, try to highlight it saying that this is as of 2020. So no one uh, goes in looking around after this morning espresso and try to find the information because that's not <laughs> going to be there until a year or so. So, so basically, you know, as of today, we're already seeing that product disclosure is going to be more detailed. And from what Michael was just saying, this is just going to get more and more granular as time goes on. Um, and, and perhaps like you were saying as well, you know, we'll have these sort of standardized kids, ESG kids, um, if you like, uh, as well. So these, these are all things uh, for the future as well. This is all sort of things that are impacting us as, a, as an asset manager, but what impact is this all gonna have in terms of the distributors? You know, the people that are watching Morning Expresso every week, I hope, um, you know, what's the impact for them? Well, for sure they are watching Morning Expresso every week, no <laughs> doubt about that. Uh, but, but let me probably start off and I will not repeat everything we have said in previous sessions about uh, the impact on distributors, but. The essential element is basically that uh, MIFI 2 is a game changer. This has been widely acknowledged and accepted by the industry. And this kind of game changer, what is actually the essential element of it? One of which of uh, these essential elements is certainly the integration of the sustainability preference into the suitability assessment. So basically going forward, checking in on clients, sustainability preference will be an integral part of each and every piece of advice advisors are giving to clients. So that is basically to set the scene again for what is coming next. And then when you take into account also the dimension of the SFDR now and the product disclosure and the product classification uh, as a most prominent uh, aspect probably, uh, the classification into Article 6, Article 8, Article 9 products, uh, they also will play an integral role uh, in how advisors are going to offer uh, products or how they design distribution uh, in the future. So uh, even though MIFI 2 is still uh, some time ahead and uh, there will be some uh, further clarification to be received, so we're still waiting for the final delegated access to see I mentioned earlier, it's probably not a too bad idea right now already as a distributor to uh, just at least familiarize yourself with uh, what are the classifications and the methodologies for these kind of classifications that uh, asset managers are using? So what are actually the features, determining uh, the environmental or social characteristics to make an Article 8 product an Article 8 product? Or what are the sustainability objectives uh, bringing a product to Article 9 status? Uh, mm. And I guess also comparing the different offerings can make sense for distributors because at the end, it's the advisor actually will exactly have to assess these features and be familiar with these features in order to explain them to the client ideally yeah. in the best possible way right so yeah. uh, starting early is probably not a bad thing here at least to my opinion and uh, remember there's also this one thing that a simple article 8 product and i call it simple article 8 meaning a product which is not considering pie on product level or basically uh, is providing for a minimum proportion of sustainable investments. Yet again, thresholds to be determined or to be yeah. decided upon. Uh, they might not be 
uh, that might not be enough in order to be eligible uh, for advice or for sale to a client with a sustainability preference. So as a distributor, uh, I would probably uh, try to be, uh, be ready with the additional data, with this additional disclosure that I would have to absorb, take into my own value chain, uh, and also see how can basically these explanations, this information, and also the reporting that I'm getting from the asset managers I'm working with, how can I basically use that in the best, uh, best possible way, pardon. Um, because all these data reporting is at the end also what the clients might ask you for. Because remember clients now with uh, the MIFID two delegated acts uh, as expected are getting a right, getting a right to basically ask you as a distributor, what is your sustainability offering? And why do you select this kind of uh, set of products that you want to advise me on? And what is basically the integration into your entire value proposition? So it's quite an essential element, again, also to start early and understand the do's and don'ts and also have an operationally viable setup ready for this. And uh, maybe lastly, and with the risk, Paul, uh, that I'm sounding here like a broken record, uh, I guess, <laughs> it's inevitably important uh, that uh, distributors start considering or have already started ideally to upskill their advisors. So education is key because the advisors need to be prepared. They need to have a kind of toolkit when basically being client facing as to how to assess clients needs is one thing, but also to assess on the other side, which of the products that uh, the firm or the distributor has in offer uh, actually could fit to the clients given the sustainability preference expressed. Uh, and I guess it's clear to everyone that uh, we are now at the beginning of a journey. It's not now a one-off exercise. Actually, uh, it is expected that MIFID 2 will require regular review of your product selection and offering uh, and also the products that you have in there. But also over time, more and more products with, let's say, um, this distinguished ESG features or sustainability objectives will likely come to market uh, and identifying then the right ones, which are the ones that I basically want to bring forward to my particular clientele, to my different kind of uh, client segments, that can actually be quite vital uh, for also having a sustainable uh, business success too in the future. So uh, last piece that I probably would say there is that keep your eyes open on MIFID 2 and what it brings. Keep your eyes open also on how to engage best with asset managers. And for us, I mean, feel free, reach out to us all the time here at Nordea Asset Management. We will be uh, absolutely happily uh, helping you with any question that you come forward with. And also basically think of what's your firm's current, but also future strategy in terms of sustainability offering. And for example, how can we at Nordea Asset Management help you in order to get you there? So when I was younger, I was a Boy Scout and the motto was uh, be prepared. So be prepared, I guess, is the, is the motto here as well. I, th I think the fact that you're actually watching this video um, means that you're probably better at, uh, prepared than, than most. But uh, do continue to, to keep up to date with what's going on. And to that end, as Michael just said, we're here to help you in whatever way we can. So um, that's an open offer there. Should we get to the key takeaways uh, before we wrap up for this morning? And so the first key takeaway, first of all, of course, today, March the 10th, um, it's a landmark. And uh, as Cecilia was saying, this is really a bit of a game changer in terms of ESG and regulation in Europe. 
and uh, we're going to see more and more transparency going forward and um, disclosure as well in that respect within the asset management industry as a whole. The next landmark then is the RTS, which we will, as we said, will come into force on the 1st of January next year. But like Michael was saying, it's only nine months away and uh, we all know how time flies. So um, don't leave it to the last minute. Uh, be prepared and, and start to get ready now. We need to be ready for this, uh, for, for the delegated acts uh, changes as well. And uh, that is in regard to internal governance, uh, the data processing, but also the training of staff. So all of those elements uh, together. And uh, as we've just said, you know, feel free to engage with the industry, engage with us um, and, and make sure that you're really fit for the future. Those are the main key, key takeaways for this morning. Is there anything you'd like to add, uh, Michael or Cecilia, before we leave? Not for me. I guess this is quite a fair wrap up. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> Good. No, thank you. I think I look forward to seeing all the disclosures in the market going forward. Exactly. So thank you both uh, for this morning. Do join us again next week. That will be March the 17th. And what we'll be doing is we'll be taking a closer look at these uh, new EU uh, ESG regulations and we'll be looking uh, at how they affect our ESG stars range. Remember, whenever you hear stars at Nordea, that's our dedicated ESG offering. And um, we're going to see how that fits with these new guidelines. So um, do join us for that. In the meantime, don't forget our microsite, the Stay Alert microsite at nordia.lu, where you have all of the previous interviews, where we have podcasts and also Q&As. And uh, of course, our website, nordiaassetmanagement.com. That's it for this week. I'll see you next Wednesday.